Hello and welcome to Cross Street Coaching. I'm your host, Jason, from Hawthorne Union. This show is designed to be bite-sized information on personal growth, career, and leadership development, and professional coaching. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Cross Street Coaching. And with me today, we are doing an interesting experiment in social distancing where we are not in the podcast studio, but I have a guest with me and we're trying some new software out with Zencaster. And from one household all the way across the country, I have a guest with me. It goes by the name of Love. Hello. (laughs) And Love, how do you like to be introduced? So I generally go by Love, but my full name is Love Odi Kamui. And I have held a multiplicity of um, roles. So I've, you know, carried many introductions through my life, which at many times have included educator, professor, lawyer, and currently I'm a consultant working at the intersection of conflict, transformation, and um, inclusion concerns. Yeah. And so for someone who is not in the DNI space, diversity and inclusion, how would you explain what what it is that you do? Sure. Well, there are many people in the DNI space, and I have a running um, list of, you know, I, I keep my finger on how that recruiting looks like in this space. And they're currently, well, before this COVID crisis, over a thousand open positions on DNI. And DNI looks very different for different organizations, but the essence of it is a collective effort to mitigate mitigate bias, harassment, um, discrimination, and to raise awareness about the importance of having diversity of identity and thought um, within a work environment in a way that there is a sense of belonging, ideally, right? So not just counting heads, but ensuring that people feel included and people feel that their voices and concerns are valued and consider it to be important in the work that they do. Yeah, it's going to be interesting as uh, COVID-19 starts to wind down from being an emergency kind of solution where everyone's working from home. And as we start going back into the workplace, and as we have a lot of people that are displaced with jobs, it's going to be very interesting how companies are going to be perceiving that and how they're going to be enacting on that. But I would love to hear from you, Love, what what inspired you to come on to the show today? So I'll say you, Jason, inspired me partially um, just because I am aware of your interest and passion for supporting diverse people, um, as well as... Um, I know that this is a time where a lot of people are scaling back because of their, you know, the loss, the economic loss. Well, they're still counting what that looks like from the COVID Mm -hmm. crisis. But um, I think it's important to have a voice in the fact that now is not the time to scale back 
on diversity strategy. And now is the time to really look at what inclusion looks like. If one thing that the COVID crisis has taught us is that people are affected differently. So there's a common statement that, you know, we are all in the same boat, but truly we are not feeling the same storm. Um, so some people, it's, you know, they're cruising and it's, you know, time, downtime to connect with family and friends and, you know, to rest. While for some people, there is a lot of economic distress. And what that looks like um, and feels like for many people is really different. So now is an important time for people to really activate those diversity and inclusion banner statements um, to show, not just tell, that there is a commitment to inclusion. Yeah, I I have to agree is that when you kind of look on social media, there is kind of a, a polarity of responses. One seems to be just the, the major discomfort from being inside. And then two is a, a very alarmist mentality when people don't know, you know, if their job is secure or if they're getting furloughed or how they're going to make things. So when you start seeing this kind of, of of split between how people are responding what what do you think is the the biggest concern for you and the work that you're doing so sure so when i see that disparity in response it really points back to one of the core areas of thinking around diversity and a, a major part of my work is also in conflict transformation and this part is unconscious bias. So mm-hmm. unknowingly, I think people express things from, you know, their most for their, their most aware place. So there is an unconscious or subconscious way of overlooking things that are important to other people and really focusing on what's most important to you or what's most pertinent to you and the people that you care about, the people who are in your trust circle. So this disparity is just one, it's just another way um, that manifests how people are treated. So a common one that I've often heard is or, or seen is where people express what they need from a work environment to feel included and heard. And for some people that might be, hey, we should go get drinks together. Whereas for um, women in the workplace, that might mean, well, I'm not very concerned about getting drinks. I am concerned about childcare. And for someone else, it's I'm concerned about getting enough flex time to take care of um someone who is sick or disabled in my family, whereas for someone else, it would be I need some support because of my socioeconomic background. I am burdened down by enormous student loan. So our sense of how we respond to what's going on, I think, is just indicative of where we come from and the biases that we have, the unconscious biases by no means does that in, indicate bad intent, but it just points to the fact that we generally operate using what um, Daniel Kahneman in uh, Think Fast, Think Slow, the book, speaks about our systems one and systems two brain, right? Like we revert to our systems one thinking, which is just very easy, responsive, rather than taking a pause and digging deeper and thinking about how the things that we say and do might impact those around us. And, you know, shifting away from that surface level to really 
um, move into a state of reflective thinking and reflective being. Yeah. And so when we're talking about things like unconscious bias, how do you define that for people that have heard of those words, but don't know how it specifically impacts them or their workplace? Unconscious bias is our tendency to respond and act or be from a place of prejudice, right? Prejudice, not in a negative way, but prejudice meaning our preferred state of doing things, our unintentional, deeply ingrained behavior. And one of the basic, um, a very simple way that I think about it is um, when when you learn to walk, right? Um, you it, it, After a while, it becomes an automated activity. After a while, you learn to climb the stairs, which is a more complex way of walking. And with time, we have mastered unconsciously the standardized distance between one rung of stairs and another one in such a way that we can run up and down a staircase. Um, and this is a very, I don't know, simplistic uh, way of thinking about it. But if you've ever walked up or down a stairs that is not properly built, there's a chance that you'll trip. Um, and that's because you unconsciously have mastered how to run up and down a standardized rung of stairs. Going up and down, you could do it half asleep um, without much trouble. And when you think of unconscious bias, that means we act and respond to people from almost as an automaton. Um, and why this is problematic is that people come from different places. People have different identities and different needs um, and different reasons behind why they act. And if we are dealing with each other as automatons from a place of unconsciousness and um, deeply ingrained behavior, then we really lose out on the nuances. And what that can lead to is discrimination. And what that shows up as often is conflict in the workplace. So we end up butting heads and we end up um, misunderstanding each other or not making space for each other because we are... Um, acting from a place of just um, prejudiced behavior. Yeah, I really, I really like that metaphor of the the stairs and kind of that that automatic reflexive judgment of the distance. Because in some circumstances, when you are trying to get to work, and you can just you know jump down the stairs and not even think about it, it's not a problem. But if you were to slip and fall then all of a sudden your focus becomes an like, oh man, how could I do that? I was so stupid, especially if you get injured. And Precisely. One of the I, yeah. One of the things that I find so interesting is that the just the name unconscious bias seemingly brings up a, a, a negative connotation where people have this reaction of, oh, unconscious bias. No, no, no. I, I'm not biased. Not me. And so how do you explain the difference between the parts of unconscious bias that are positive and good and the parts that are, are harming us? Sure. So good people have biases. Everyone has biases. Biases is what helps us to be able to run quickly to work, right? Biases is what helps us to be able to um, 
to just get around in life quickly. We have to make split second judgment. There is a statistic of how many decisions um, we make on a daily basis. And it's probably in thousands. I think there's a rough number around 35,000 decisions that we make every day, split decisions um, that we are probably not you know, realizing, I mean, the more conscious is, you know, do you want cream in your coffee or not? Do you want this or that, right? Apples or oranges, tea or coffee, um, candy or chewing gum. Um, So biases are inherently important for us to navigate life. Now, what becomes challenging is when those biases impacts the way we treat people and if we treat people negatively and whether or not our decision-making has an impact on the outcomes of other people's lives. And that is really when it beckons us to really slow down, to become more conscious. I think another word to think about is mindfulness. I think mindfulness is a word that has been positively received. So one way to really counter um, our, pre- and you know, another word for biases is preferences, strong prejudicial preferences. Another way of, of countering that is acting from a place of mindfulness and acting from a place of um, being fully aware of yourself and fully aware of um, your preferences for one thing and for another and beginning to question those things. So another way to counter biases in the workplace is to begin to say, why am I choosing this path? Why am I choosing this person or that person? Um, When you think about inclusion, generally speaking, there there have been several studies um, around how recruitment happens, for example, one in particular showed that people of a particular name that were sounding ethnic um, or non-white received less um, interest by recruiters. And for many years, recruiters said, well, we are not biased. You know, we are not letting down our standards. We're choosing the right persons for the right jobs. And um, a particular study pursued the project of scrubbing all the names and identifying factors of applications and outcomes show that there was, of course, an inherent bias in the choices between, uh, if you will, white sounding male name and an ethnic sounding female name, for example. Um, And that is just outstanding because everything on the resume remained the same, but the names. And that was that just points to um, that sense of, you know, recruiters being in their earnest, pursuing um, new hires, wanting to do the best for the company, but not recognizing that unconsciously they were leaning one way over another over something as simple as a name. Yeah, thanks for that explanation. Um, And I am familiar with that initial kind of study. I think it was anecdotally, it was uh, a person on YouTube was explaining about their their job search. And I find it interesting that you bring up mindfulness, which is a a current, very, very hot, you know, hot topic, especially in the digital app space, uh, digital wellness, digital mindfulness. So when you start thinking about things like diversity and inclusion and mindfulness, and these sort of quote unquote soft skills being very, very popular in the corporate space. What do you think is leading to the the popularity 
of these topics being on corporations' minds? Sure. Um, if I if I may um, just go back a little bit on the on the study, I, I I know while it may have been done on YouTube, anecdotally, actual studies mm-hmm. have actually um, been pursued and published by journals that shows white you know whitened resumes um, receive a lot more attention than names that are not. Um, yes, you're correct. Sorry, it was I. I remember when it when it was yeah. happening anecdotally, and it was a very popular YouTube video. But you're right; there there are a lot of published studies, so I don't want to take away from that. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Um, so, by no means am I a mindfulness um, expert, um, but from what I know and from what I understand is that increasingly there is an interest in the workplace, and there is an understanding that. Um, the hard and fast metrics that people have been using to measure performance are not sufficient to inspire people to be engaged and to create a sense of connectedness and psychological safety in the workplace. So right now, you know, previously they were considered soft skills, but I think there is more of a transition toward essential skills um, that are critical for people to um to be their full selves and to show up fully in their in their workplace. And I think that the thought process around mindfulness is one of those things that fill that area of need. Is there anything specifically you think you can attribute to to the to the rise in focus on such an important topic? There has there's often a there has been within the last decade um, an increase um, saturation of information activism um, around that. I think also with a lot of research that has come out to show that companies that have more diverse boards um, have an increased ROI on investment has shown that um, diversity isn't something that's just for goodwill, but definitely affects the bottom line. Also, there is there there is a shortage of, or, or prior to this crisis, a shortage of labor. And companies now just realize that when there's conflict in the workplace or when people are not feeling connected or feeling included, they can't just say, well, you know, leave. The, the churn is going to cost the company. Someone is leaving with knowledge, skills, and resources that are critical. Um, companies are also concerned about your net promoter score, and they know that they will tank publicly or implode internally if they do not um, act in a way that's responsive to the needs of the people. So um, their reputation is on the line, the bottom line is on the line, as well as the people that are so critical to their success. So I think there has been a lot of action that has shifted from the margins to the workplace. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I'd love for you to talk, Love, a little bit about how you got into this corner of the market and what has led you to feel so passionate about this topic. I, I've i had, a, like I mentioned, a career evolution. And one of the critical points of my career was over a, over a decade ago, I trained um, Peace Corps volunteers prior to their deployment abroad. And that was a very interesting job at the beginning of my career where it was critical for me to help professionals who wanted to do good abroad 
to really think deeply about the ways in which they needed to do that in um, a culturally aware and culturally respectful and conscious way. So while um, these volunteers may have been, you know, being deployed to other countries and they were bringing really great skills, if they did not act from a place that was respected, respectful um, to the culture, the needs, the concerns of the local populations, then that would really impede their effectiveness. Um, with time, I my career progressed um, and I practiced employment law briefly. And there again, I was um, very much exposed to how things went really wrong within companies because there was just a lack of understanding of what it took for people to create an inclusive workspace and how that resulted in litigation. And with time, I have evolved to work in um, very strategically with several organizations to um, consult and have them really think deeply about how they are creating inclusive spaces. And one of the ways in which I do that is through mediation, and a method of mediation or conflict resolution known as conflict transformation. And what, why, what I'm really passionate about is using conflict transformation to promote inclusion. And what that looks like is really creating spaces, systems, and structures where people aren't just learning surface level about what diversity and inclusion is. And I think, you know, you alluded to that in terms of um, when you drop a word like diversity or unconscious bias in the room and you leave it or you define it um, lightly and you say, well, this is something that we need and you're not creating a space for exchange, that can even leave more tensions than um, before you stepped into that room. So while people are pushing towards diversity, Diversity without dialogue, for me, is exclusion. Um, because if you are creating a diverse group of people, but you're not creating spaces for people to deepen their knowledge and increase their awareness and engage in an authentic way through facilitated dialogues or trainings or um the development of systems where, for example, if there is a conflict, they can engage with the help of a mediator or a facilitator and develop um, solutions that are fitting to the needs of that workplace, then we might be sort of opening a can of worms that we have no um, way of putting aside. This sounds like really difficult work and very tough to engage because it, it deals a lot with some of the dark side of emotions and some of the dark sides of of kind of the ability for community both for and against different uh, minority groups so how is it that that you're able to f still feel so hopeful and passionate about the work that you're doing because obviously there are many examples i can think of that Again, when you talk about diversity without inclusion, it's almost detrimental to even start down that path because you've essentially opened a can of worms. So I'd love to hear about how you kind of navigate that and what keeps you going in a very tough, tough area of employment and conflict resolution. I think what keeps me going is my experiences with the amazing things that can happen when people experience a shift. It's 
it's just the most rewarding feeling to, to just see someone have this aha moment. Um, and I have had situations where um, there has been conflict between someone who held um, one far, um, a, a far left versus a far right political view. Mm-hmm. And while they were expected to work together, this became an increase in tension just because, you know, people still have regular conversations while doing their, their, their jobs. And I was able to support those persons through a series of conflict coaching sessions, which is, which are one-on-ones and then subsequently a facilitated or mediation mediated dialogue. And it's just astounding to see what can happen when you create the climate and the conditions to support people. For me, I'll be stepping into that role as a neutral person and facilitating this dialogue. And the outcome of that was just amazing um, for people who just could not see eye to eye, shift into a space of collaboration, shift into a space of empathy, shift into a space of greater respect. Um, makes me feel very, very hopeful that this transformation is so necessary. I think more people need to know that this is possible. The current state of engaging, I would say, traditionally, whether through human resources, I think human resources are just overwhelmed. There's a lot of policy and procedures that they have to enact, whether um, for their states or government or for their organizations. and there is a lot of training that happens, you know, as a drop and go. But when things go wrong, um, there really is hardly a space for people to engage deeply in a transformative dialogue that can help them to activate the things that they have learned. Because there's a lot of training. There are a lot of trainings out there. There, There's a lot of material out there. There's a lot of what we ought to be doing or what we should be doing. But when the rubber hits the road, there are very little spaces for people to get together to say, well, X has happened and how do we move forward and how can you support me to move forward successfully? Yeah. Are you able to share any successful examples of implementing some of your practices? Sure. Um, The scenario that I gave of the political difference in the workplace was one. Mm -hmm. Of course, I can't, um, you know, disclose too much, but um, most recently I work with a large university, an Ivy League university, to develop for them a conflict resolution practice. Um, And what's interesting about this, it was um, creating a space for members of that university to have someone to go to to say, well, something has gone wrong and how can we fix this? Um, Which one of your many, you know, how can we tap into um, the tools of conflict resolution or alternative dispute resolution for us to move forward? So there's one area of the work that I do and that's providing training. And this is very skills-based training. So there are some concepts and theory in there about, um, biases or who we are and how we navigate the world, but it's also really about giving to people um, the language, the skills, and the framework to think about how conflict happens. And more often than not, when I 
leave those spaces, people are reaching out to me to say, hey, I just realized that there's something going on in our um, department and things have been really toxic and we haven't quite put our finger on it. Um, could you come in and talk to a few people to help us navigate the way forward and what that looks like? Um, for example, I went into one of those departments is having conversation with various stakeholders to understand the positions, the needs and their interests. And at some point, if it's appropriate, bringing people all together around the table to really have very um, authentic um, dialogue that's facilitated to support them to, to reflect on what has been going on and to co-create a new way forward. Yeah, and I think it's it's very, you know, there's a plenty of examples of of companies and and especially in higher education places uh, universities that are not doing it right are there companies or organizations that are doing diversity and inclusion and managing conflict that you would like to point as an example for others to to look at i think that there are lots of companies who are doing diversity and inclusion um well in terms of and um I'm trying to be cautious just because I know companies change on a day-to-day basis to, sure. to not name anyone specifically. But I know that a lot of companies have done really well in measuring what hiring looks like, measuring, um, ensuring that they're recruiting from various identities, ensuring that they're creating those spaces. What I will say is that there is a gap between the diversity work and the conflict resolution work. I think Mm -hmm. there are not many people who have made that connection between how conflict, to my mind, diversity needs dialogue, right? And the dialogue is the conflict resolutions piece. And while sometimes we are having diversity dialogues, we are having diversity dialogues about diversity and not necessarily about us. <laughs> so <laughs> we are having um, philosophical thoughts about, you know, what does identity looks like? You know, what does respect mean to you? Or what does, um, you know, unconscious bias mean to you? And, and those are great. But knowing what does that mean for us in our scenario and how, in what ways have we not lived up to those definitions of respect and inclusion? In what ways have we possibly harmed each other? And have we taken the time to make that right? So I pursue and use, so I come from a very interesting, you know, career background where on one hand, I have that exposure to cross-cultural and inclusion work, as well as I have the piece of coming from a litigation and mediation background. And I am just standing at that intersection saying, hey, you two need to be talking to each other. Um, And conflict uh, mediation has been generally applied as an alternative to, 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 you know, pursuing an action in court. However, there are many ways in which that dialogue can be applied, whether through using restorative justice or um, mediation or facilitation of um, sessions to help people to really talk through their issues. So I do think that there is a major gap in um, the in, in the workplace in connecting that diversity piece with the dialogue piece. 
Excellent. Well, this is this has been a really awesome, very interesting conversation. I, I really feel like we've just barely scratched the surface. Um, but part of the what we do on, on this show, love, is talking about how you are keeping yourself afloat with the work that you're doing. So I heard you say words like authentic. How do you make sure that you're being authentic to yourself and your values while still supporting others through their journey in whatever form or fashion that takes? Yeah, um, that's so important. Being uh, Remaining authentic is for me checking in with myself to say, am I living out loud what I know deep down to be my truest self? Um, and that can be really hard because I think um, many of us in the workplace, even outside diversity, oftentimes have to make um, have to make concessions for what we do and how we navigate the world around us. So, of course, we make concessions, and we and, and there are t- times when I have to, you know, pull back at not being. Um, too vocal or not being um, too for, um, forceful with my views. But then sometimes being vocal is a matter of justice and equity, right? So that's really um, important for me to be a voice to the voiceless or for people who are not feeling very empowered. So I think there is um, often for me an internal dance of doing the work um, making time and creating space to uplift the voices of other people, but also finding ways to refill um, by connecting with people who are doing the same type of work as myself, people who are peace builders, people who are um, conflict resolution um, specialists or people who work at the forefront of this um, to, to tap into the good stories of how this is working, hoping that I can inspire myself to do more good out there. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for making some time to talk with me about such a, an important issue that is uh, currently in the mainstream. Where can people find out more about you and the work that you're doing? Sure. Um, my consulting firm is called Unsiloed. And that really comes from me really thinking about silos and the way we operate in silos. So it's my effort to unsilo the world. So it's unsiloed, U-N-S-I-L-O-E-D.org. And you can also find me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Love Odi Kamui um, at LinkedIn. All right. We'll have links to all those in the show notes. Love, thank you so much for coming on. And until next time. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. It was such a delight um, sharing with you. Likewise. Thanks for tuning in. For more information on Hawthorne Union, you can go to www.hawthorneunion.com or reach us at info at hawthorneunion.com. 